0: Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Two guests today. First, David palumbo Lou will talk about the right's war on academic freedom, and then Jody Dean will sort out Trump for us. First, campus wars. Sometimes people on the left dismiss universities as bastions of privilege, irrelevant to the class war, which takes place at the point of production. But the right takes the academy very seriously, seeing it as an intolerable realm of freedom of thought where minds of the future are shaped in ways they don't like. Some of these battles have taken the form of attacks on various professors, George Sicarello Mar, who was driven out of Drexel University, and Johnny Eric Williams of Trinity College, who has survived vicious attacks from people who wanted him fired. All have experienced death threats and other forms of harassment. David palumbo Liu, who teaches comparative literature at Stanford, is the latest high-profile target. Here he is to tell us why and why it matters. In the interview, palumbo Lu mentions Robert Spencer, For a moment, I thought he was misnaming Richard Spencer, the well-dressed neo-Nazi, but in fact, he was talking about the professional Islamophobe and David Horowitz sidekick who runs an odious website called Jihad Watch. All right, here's David Palumbo Liu. Welcome, David. First of all, you
1: you teach, uh, what, literature at Stanford, right? Yeah, I'm a professor of comparative literature here at Stanford. What's your specialty there? Uh, Well, right now I'm working on human rights and global literature and things like that. I've been here for about 27 years now, for God's sake. Wow.
0: <laughs> a real veteran. Um right. You're under attack by the right. So what kind of things have you you've been saying uh lately that uh that have exercised the right?
1: Well, the the right is, you know, not big at Stanford, but it has a significant media organ in this thing called the Stanford Review. It was founded in 1987 by David, uh, by Peter Thiel. And um the context for that appearance was right in the middle of the culture wars uh when we were debating multiculturalism, this and that. And I came to Stanford and was probably first brought on their radar because I work in ethnic and racial studies. And so that already had me in their bad category. And then I became very active with um, the BDS movement. And the first piece they did on me was actually called Stanford's Most Radical Professor Strikes Again. So it was, it was a piece that they didn't even bother interviewing me on. But it was about Israel, Palestine, and was a it was a hit piece.
0: It's possible moment there. Though. Stanford doesn't strike me as um, an extraordinarily radical place. I have only visited, but uh, well, what is the general political tenor on campus?
1: It's really apolitical. It really is embedded in Silicon Valley, and there's a kind of the, the overall climate here is let's do our business and. And not talk about things, you know, just do ordinary academic business. The Hoover Institute is here, of course. But for all the time I've been here, they've always been kept sort of at arm, arm's length from the main university. They really are an ancillary unit that just is here as a legacy from Herbert Hoover. And so they've they've tried to make incursions into the main campus in terms of programming and whatnot. And actually, and this is something we could we could talk more about if you want later on. They've started what's called cardinal conversations, which which is their version of managed free speech. They're bringing Charles Murray out, and unfortunately, the the um, administration here has has gone along with it. And so now, Charles Murray is speaking at Stanford under the umbrella of free speech, but it's being housed at the Hoover. So it already moves it over into their terrain. So this is this is a troubling development. Actually,
0: of all things, you may not believe this, but I was a Hoover mil- uh, media fellow about. Uh, five years ago. Yeah. Because the the, yeah. the person running it was uh, a, a closet left winger and she brought in as many left wingers as she could get away with. But as I recall, it was really lived in its own world. It was very well resourced, but it was really very um, uh, isolated from the rest of the campus. Is that that's correct?
1: Absolutely. But recently, I would say about five years ago, you know, they've gone to various directors and I was at one faculty senate meeting when uh, the new Hoover director gave a presentation. He said, we'd really like to be the public policy wing of Stanford. And that sent shudders down many of our backs because, you know, that, that was a real intrusion into, um, into the university proper. The last big upset with the the Hoover was when they tried to give Donald Rumsfeld an honorary degree or an honorary title. And we, we fought back against that. And it really helped again, foreground the relationship was between the Hoover and the main campus. But now that again, with these recent, um, Debates over spe- free speech, they sort of commandeered that that space, and that that's troubling.
0: Yeah, okay. Okay. And then these, these cardinal uh, events, what are these about? Conversations. Conversations.
1: They basically are, are trying to say that we can have civil debates, but the, they're bringing Charles Murray in, and his interlocutor is a Hoover fellow, Francis Fukuyama. Oh, my God. I know, exactly. What kind of dialogue or, you know— uh, and at one point, I think on their website, and you can check it out on their website, they said, "Well, we hope to widen the debate. We might bring uh, Tanehase Coates out." So I thought, you know, if that is your, if that is the one end of the spectrum, then we're already having problems. But I mean, ever since Trump's election, all these things have been renegotiated in some ways, and and that's why what's happening to me is 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 now taking place under a, a rather different climate than what we're used to at Stanford.
0: Now back to you. You got you're very vocal on on BDS issues, right? Right. Did you attract like national attention from the Zionist operation for that? Not more than usual.
1: Um but what it did do was made me cautious about dealing with them. And so when they approached me recently about the campus anti-fascist network which I helped um establish, I said, "Well, there's already news stories out there and inside higher education and other venues and why don't you look at those first and then get back to me with some emailed questions and i even said campus reform which is a right-wing college paper did actually a fairly responsible job and i said that's closer to your ideological point of view so look at there's two and the editor wrote me back and she said thanks i looked at the links here's here's a set of questions and so we did everything over email and um nothing was done without being traceable And they pressed, they really pressed me on this issue of violence. Did I endorse it? What did I call, what did I, what would I consider self-defense to be? And I was very explicit. And it was a very cordial, you know, back and forth, which was why it shocked me that when I clicked on the link that she gave me, the, the title is something like Antifa Thugs Find a Leader in Palumbo Liu. It was just, it was so off the scale. And the other thing that surprised me, at uh, which your listeners should know, which I haven't divulged yet, which is that so she approached me and I figured that she'd get the byline. But the byline is shared with this person named John Rice Cameron, and he is a well-known college Republican. He is the person who brought Robert Spencer to the Stanford campus. He's also the son of Susan Rice. so <laughs> there's there's a lot of other stuff going on here, but I didn't you know I didn't want to make it personal. I really want to. In, in moving this case out into the public, show the deviousness of the Stanford review. And what I did in my response piece, which has now had like 3,000 likes on Facebook and Stanford alone, I think, was really say, this is the way that the alt-right operates. They have this sort of stealth entree into your confidence, and then they will take everything that you give them and run it through their particular mill. And this is one of the points I really want to make in this broadcast, which is that It often begins this way. You'll see flyers on campus saying, yay, free markets, this or that, from Turning Point. And it all seems innocuous and well within a kind of libertarian framework. But that's the way they get into campus. And then once they get a a beachhead, so to speak, they will start um, doing things like uh, sending people into classrooms, which is what they did at UC San Diego. Identity Europe sent people in and started taking notes. On liberal professors. And then Turning Points has this professor's watch list. So it becomes very McCarthyite, very stealth, and then gets picked up by Fox News. I mean, they feed it into Fox News. They become a kind of conduit into the much broader national spectrum. And professors like myself have very little recourse when it gets up to that, that volume.
0: How did you answer those violence questions?
1: Well, I responded to them in terms of first question, which is, um, does your organization, organization associate itself with anti-violence? I said, no, we explicitly do not. However, we do feel that self-defense is legitimate. Uh, we don't believe in initiating violence, but um, in self-defense, that's that's it's appropriate to use whatever force is necessary. And she then pressed me on that and said, well, what do you mean by self-defense? Self-defense against what? And he used that to both talk about you know, the kinds of things that went on in Charlottesville with, that Cornel West just talked a lot about, you know, that he and other clergy people were out singing this little lamp of mine. And all of a sudden these white supremacists came at them with clubs and he said if it wasn't for the anti fi activists, they would have been crushed like cockroaches. Also web harassment, you know, internet harassment and things like that. So all those things I think are pro- appropriate calls for defense that are commensurate with the attack.
0: From these kinds of answers, they transformed you into a thug, which, from what I
1: know of you, seems like the most preposterous accusation. I know. When you you look at the Fox News segment, I must credit Fox for giving me a very nice photo. (laughs) I'm there in this suit and tie. (laughs) So that's what thugs look like. But we must be very, very stealth. But yes. And they also said, um, and the thing that was really quite inflammatory is that she wrote and then she repeated on Fox News that Campus anti-fascist Network has been deemed a terrorist organization by the FBI which is patently untrue in fact I'm not sure that any uh, anti-fascist organization has been labeled a terrorist organization by the Department of Homeland Security what they have said is that various anti-fa activities are labeled terrorist uh, activities but that's activities not the organizations themselves so they really are much more precise about what they are calling terrorists or not but the 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 daily uh, the, the review and the um, and Fox and Friends were perfectly happy to take that ball and run with it.
0: Now, the um, the Camp- Campus Anti-Fascist Network is pretty new, right? It was pretty hard for the government to have diagnosed the thing as a, as a terrorist organization anyway, but... Um, exactly. Th- th- but still, it's a preposterous claim. Like, uh, tell us about the uh, Campus Anti-Fascist Network. Who, 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 who Who's founded it? Um, I don't know, you and Bill Mullen and a
1: few others? Yeah. Basically, almost immediately after... Well, actually, during the campaign, when we saw the way that uh, the political speech was being was being taken into this whole new territory, it was quite frightening to us. And then as things developed, we began having conversations amongst ourselves about, well, you know, what are we going to do in terms of an organized resistance? And then there were more and more public incidents of professors in particular being targeted for speaking out against Trump or uh, against any number of uh, white supremacists organizations and then charlottesville happened and by the time that charlottesville happened we already had a a fairly close-knit group of about 12 people that were communicating uh regularly we had started thinking about a website and within i would say 72 hours of charlottesville we had a website up and we were saying you know we have to even although it's at the very beginning stages we need to have our organization out in front as a place for people to go to for um if nothing else, um, informational resources and sharing strategies and things like that. So ever since Charlottesville, we've grown to have, I think, over 2,000 members by this point. We have about a dozen chapters in the U.S. We have people in the U.K. and in Germany um, communicating with us. So it's it's both U.S.-based, but also obviously has resonances um, outside the United States. But we're basically here to educate people as to what the history of antifascism is, and also updating people in terms of what the, the situation now is. I'm speaking
0: with David Palumbo Liu, a professor of comparative literature at Stanford, who's under attack by the right. It's important to point out that the right takes the campus very seriously, whether we're talking about the Koch brothers and their yeah, philanthropy exactly. and their attempts to create institutes and all kinds of things like exactly. that, often under the guise of diversity and free speech and all this exactly. kind of business. But also, you know, the, the more thuggish right is also takes the campus very seriously. Oh yeah, And some people on the left, you know, say, oh, the campus doesn't really matter that much. It's just a bunch of pointy heads. You know, there's a kind of anti-intellectualism among right. a certain kind of workerist left. But we should emphasize this really is a very important arena for uh, the far right to uh to act in
1: oh absolutely and sometimes i hope that you do a show about what's happening at arizona state where the cook brothers have set this whole other school and they're basically appointing faculty to it that are are hardcore chicago school economists etc and they're basically arguing that the school of social transformation has courses that are now extraneous or, or duplicate theirs and so there's a real battle going on about the curriculum but you're right that um the, the notion that the, the academy is sequestered away is is really um, works against us in the sense that, for example, at Stanford, I teach a lot of first-generation students. People don't know this, but Stanford is almost majority-minority at this point. And we have really smart activist students. Um, this is a place where, you, one of the few places in the United States where you do have some modicum of academic freedom, and we have resources. And so it's this is a battleground, and the right knows it. And... The problem with the right is that they're not using it to debate ideas. They're coming here to put forward these theatrical claims to space, to harass people, and to move on. They really aren't invested in in advancing knowledge. That's a sham argument. But college administrators fall into that trap because they're ill-equipped to deal with this new phenomenon. And this is why we're trying to educate administrators and others. This is a whole new battle.
0: Well, it also seems like uh, a lot of college administrators are rather
1: lacking in backbone. <laughs> so they get any kind of pressure, they they fold rather quickly, don't they? Exactly. They go to the nearest available exit, and it's always well, free speech is for everybody, but this this is really not a free speech issue at all. Let's put these attacks on you in some
0: context. There are several other professors around the country, Johnny Eric Williams, uh, uh, George Sicker Lamar, who've been under a very heavy attack. Right. This is a, a very I would say concerted. I'm sure these people consult with each other, but it's also a very broadly uh, based attack on any professors who are seen as dangerously left of center.
1: Right, but what I mean what distinguishes my case, I must say, I mean, I I, I think the other cases are egregious and patently so, but um, they're based on something that a professor has actually said uh, that's been recontextualized, recoded, and and distorted. I have said nothing <laughs> that could Possibly be construed to be saying what they depict me as saying. you understand? And I've I've not talked about white genocide. I've not talked about let them die. I've never said anything that could be broad that could be distorted, because all the things I've said have been in print, and I'm prepared to leak those emails. It the the the, the evidence space is clear, but the, this is what the capacity of the right is: is to just put the label anti-fascist on it, and all of a sudden, that's a bad thing. It's it's skewed toward a very recent phenomenon, and it really takes it out, extracts it from the long legacy of anti-fascist work, which is uh, an honorable tradition.
0: But also, since you've been very vocal on BDS, that uh, sets off a certain kind of you know, Zionist who think that you know, supporting BDS is almost an act of violence in itself.
1: Exactly. And one of the first things that happened when we announced the Campus Anti-Fascist Network is that Bill and I got slammed in the Zionist press as being sort of this, that the campus anti-fascist network was a stealth operation of BDS. And for people to think that critiquing the ethno nationalism that's going on in Israel is separate from the critique of ethno nationalism as a fascistic uh, manifestation is crazy. I mean, they're, they're of a piece. We're perfectly consistent. And yet again, it's this, it's this way of ignoring the actualities and, Construing it in a very paranoid way that makes it um, somehow incompatible.
0: And now, of course, the the figure of Peter Thiel is important here and that kind of Silicon Valley libertarianism, which is falsely called such because it really is deeply authoritarian in its own way. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So Thiel founded this this publication, right, and funds it. And then there's this whole network around him as well, right?
1: Right, right. There's a very good um, investigative piece in uh, – and you can find it online in Stanford Politics is the name of the um, the venue. And this is a, a thoroughly investigated um, report that talks about dozens and dozens of ex-Stanford Review editors becoming part of an almost what I would call a, you know, a, a kind of venture capitalist Stanford Review um, network in Silicon Valley. And these people are, are well-placed. And they go to these regular dinners with Peter Thiel. Um, and they exchange notes, et cetera, et cetera. So this is a very powerful, powerfully um, located and uh, established network that's been going on for 30 years. So it is formidable. But um, what I'm trying to do at Stanford is to put in place, to begin with just consciousness. I mean, what what is actually going on? But also, we have something called the fundamental standard, which is very, very vague, but basically talks about, you know, we can't impugn the honor and dignity of fellow Stanford members. And people have been pressing me to use that. And I'm saying that as as a last resort, I will. But I think more important would be to put in place something like, you know, a code of ethics for journalists to follow, that you can't make these irresponsible claims founded on nothing, especially in today's climate. As a tenured professor, I'm fairly protected. But if you think about undocumented students, which have been the target of uh, when Robert Spencer came out, he, he outed various undocumented students He went; they got into private social media accounts. That's the kind of thing that we need to get administrators to recognize is the real harm and a real chill on free speech. Because, you know, we have a petition going around Stanford campus. It has over 600 signatures, but uh, supporting me and asking for some sort of uh, policy that would regulate these kinds of behaviors. And I would say about a quarter of the people have chosen not to have their names used. And I'm going to talk to the administration and say, you know, what kind of campus do we want where half the people on campus nearly feel like they can't speak out?
0: And, of course, you uh, do have the protections of tenure, but there are a whole lot of younger faculties that could only dream of that, right? Exactly. uh, They've got their eye on the long term. One of the things that's very impressive about the right is that they really do think for the long term. They really know what they're doing.
1: Yeah. If you look at, for example, in the UC system and Christopher Newfield's work – on you know the way that they've got a public education and he, you know he places it really again like the discussion we've been having about Peter Thiel around the culture wars i mean this is when things begin to solidify and the real erosion of of especially the public universities in california starts to take place and yes they do have a long game and that's why we have to start getting ready now but at the same time we also have to similarly think of of what kinds of institutions on campus whether it be small or or large, should we have in place so that we can build almost like a war of position within the university that will be there for progressive students? It's really important.
0: And this is, of course, what you're trying to do with the campus uh, anti-fascist network.
1: That's precisely it, yeah.
0: Uh, And anything more local to Stanford that you've got going?
1: I think what's been really impressive has been the stamina of the students. And what we are really working on is faculty-student collaboration, because when they voted, when the student government voted for divestment from companies doing business in the occupied territories, that was a coalition. The first time they tried it, which was two years prior, they lost. And in the two years, they really got their game together and brought in a wide coalition of students from across campus, and they won by a lopsided margin of victory. And the demonstration against Robert Spencer, again, was was very, very well done. Again, the university allowed him on campus. He was brought in by the College Republicans, one of whom was the co-author of the hit piece On Me. And the students basically occupied, you know, they went into the auditorium and they filled it and then they walked out in 20 minutes and he was left with 10 people there to, to talk to. And they took a before and after picture. It was quite well done. And there was a demonstration outside with about a thousand people. At the demonstration outside, people were talking about tenants' rights. You know, gay rights, all sorts of other things. So there's a real potential there of collaboration between faculty and students. It has to be a collaborative effort because uh, individually or in small groups, we really are are easy picking.
0: And then finally, what can people not at Stanford or outside the academy do to uh, to help in this fight?
1: Well, I think the first thing to do is to to learn more and really read widely. I mean, even places like The Washington Post recently did a, a piece that echoed what you said earlier which is the right is really targeting college campuses. And so even the mainstream press is beginning to see this as a phenomenon that is important to note. And it's not casual. It's not ad hoc. It is programmed. And what's one of the things that's quite of concern is that uh, these um, conservative groups are funding student government elections. So it's gotten to that degree of, you know, placing people inside so first of all, is to educate yourself. Second of all is to support organizations like the American Association of University Professors, American Civil Liberties Union, um, Campus Anti-Fascist Network. All these things are in place, are, are really good first steps. But most important is to really understand. And Melissa Figueroa and I did a piece in The Nation on this. Uh, this is not a free speech issue. We really have to make the pivot into the current situation and the way that it's being manipulated. And it's not about free speech or only about free speech in a very marginal way. They're using that as a foot in the door to get much uh, more pernicious things onto campus.
0: I was David palumbo liu a professor of comparative literature at Stanford. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. some of Brahms' Quintet for Piano and String's second movement performed by the Amadeus Quartet with Christoph Eschenbach in piano. Next, by popular request, Jody Dean. Jody, a frequent behind-the-news guest, teaches political science at Hobart and William Smith Colleges in upstate New York. She's also a prolific author whose most recent book is Crowds and Party, published in 2016 by Verso. After Trump's State of the Union address the other night, the fiber optic networks were all lit up with a lot of bloviation trying to discern the meaning of Donald Trump. Most of it was not very helpful. What should we make of this guy? Worst thing ever, we're just business as usual. What forces does he express and encourage? What does his presidency say about the state of the USA? No one is better equipped to answer those questions than Jody Dean, not only because of her expertise in political science, but also because she's such a skilled psychoanalyst of the public culture. Jody Dean. We're recording this uh, the day after Trump's State of the Union. And of course, everybody is reacting to Trump. Is he disgusting? Is he presidential? It's really hard to sort out how to think about this guy. He's been in office for a little over a year. And, you know, we've got these twin polls where he is the worst thing ever, or he's just business as usual, maybe raised to a slightly higher level of intensity. Help us think about this. What's your evaluation? Uh, how much of a departure uh, and... Um, how alarmed should we be?
2: Trump the personality gets too much attention, right? That that Trump, Trump the personality is like the the lure or the uh, the thing that di- it's the distraction that takes us away from what's really um, a larger continuity. And you know, I think we can say the continuities with the Republicans. We can even say that the continuities also with um, with the Democrats as well. And that this continuity is an embrace of American imperialism, an embrace of the politics of the the ruling class, the corporate bourgeoisie, right, the 1%, and the continued embrace of um, a vision and practice of white supremacy. You know, I don't say this lightly, but let's think about just for a second, um, Trump's taking over the the idea of the dream and the American dream from the dreamers, right? So the the crucial rhetorical move when he's like, you know, American citizens can dream too, is an utterly anti-immigrant racist attack on DACA and attack on those dreamers. So that was a clear rhetorical move. But what struck me was also the way that Trump's move there was exactly what ta Coates has been talking about, When he discusses the the American dream and the dream in between the world and me, when he makes it really clear that that this dream was a dream of whiteness and a particular kind of white life. uh, He doesn't amplify capitalism as much as I think he should, but it's a white bourgeois life that's patriarchal, that has a particular kind of family, a particular version of achievement, particular version of what's possible. And that's what Trump gave us a vision of last night. And, and the, thing, the other thing that sort of kills me about some of the, particularly the initial mainstream media response, is they think this is unifying and balanced. That's what should be super frightening, right? This vision of, oh, yeah, a white America of citizens who are all one family. Like, that's the horrifying nationalist, jingoistic vision that, um, that Trump promulgates and that actually is shared by more of the ruling elite than they like to acknowledge.
0: You're going in a direction that he represents a departure, but then also that kind of nativism by citing quotes, uh, but you know, by any citation of history would say this is, there's also some continuities there. So uh, how do we sort that out? How much how much continuity, how much discontinuity is there in this um, this rhetoric?
2: I think it's a continuity, but I think his personality. Is the, is the disruption, the discontinuity. But, but that's just a lure, right? The underneath, it's a continuous vision. I don't think it's disruptive at all. I think it's basically um, the same core dream of the capitalist elite that has been part of the United States forever, that you sometimes get pushback to. But that is, um, yeah, I mean, it's the Republican Party and way too much of the Democratic Party.
0: Silicon Valley wants Indian programmers, uh, and the fast food industry wants latino workers uh, so he 's not necessarily doing the business of capital in uh, these um, this anti immigrant re- uh, rhetoric or these workplace raids or any of the stuff that ice is up to now so
2: well, we can recognize right that um, the different factions of the capitalist class don 't always agree um, that some portion of the capitalist class that say particularly that occupied by the Koch brothers relies on amplifying um, xenophobia and racism to get their particular version of tax breaks and corporate um, advantages secure. So I think that the fact that there's disagreement among the capitalist class doesn't speak against this general view.
0: But then you have, you know, Democrats, of course, in alarm that uh, somehow this is uh, an offense of everything good and decent in America, uh, that, you know, we're a fundamentally decent nation and these are outrageous and uh, stains upon this noble record. And you know, more specifically, that this is uh, you know, a departure from the Obama agenda, which is allegedly inclusive and humane.
2: Oh, God. <laughs> so, so yeah, You can tell my, my response on that, right? I mean, Trump. He makes deportation into something that his um, followers can enjoy, right, in the sense that we've talked about in the past, right, this kind of enjoyment of hatred and their own kind of ability to push people out and assert themselves. Um, But Obama was also increased deportations from those that were under the Bush administration. Deportations were part of his policy. Um, Trump's Militarism and imperialism were also things that were pursued by Obama and even more by Hillary Clinton. This vision of the Democrats as some kind of major oppositional force or, you know, in their rhetoric, some kind of resistance is like electoral politics game. And there's more continuity here. I mean also think like like I I've gotta say I was I don't know, I hadn't been paying a lot of attention. And then when Trump was going on about Oh, and we have to modernize and update and rebuild our nuclear arsenal. And I looked that up. That had already started under Obama, too.
0: Yeah, he wanted to spend a trillion dollars on the modernization, as they like to call it.
2: So where's the big difference there? I don't see it.
0: There is a big difference in style, though.
2: In the style. And I've got the the kind of, yeah, the the thing that's, um, that's challenging is that the elite loves Obama's style. And frankly... It seems like, I mean, I'm, I'm not among the elite, but I think a lot of us on the left also like Obama's style. What's not to like? But, but his style, too, covered over the fact that he had a, um, you know, a cabinet that was heavily influenced by Goldman Sachs. And Trump's a little worse on that score with his cabinet of the billionaires. But again, there's more continuity there than there is difference. You can Think about um, Obama's drone war, um, another version of Trump's own wars in the Middle East.
0: It seems to me that, you know, uh, the Obama cabinet, you mentioned Goldman Sachs, but there, there's a you know it's a much more polished wing of the capitalist class. And Trump's uh, base tends to be uh, freebooting, uh, freewheeling private equity guys and buyout artists and people like that. There's some differences, but, you know, they're just two wings of the same basic Wall Street structure.
2: Yeah, right. So we get the... Um rough and ready, crude part of Wall Street and then the polished Episcopalian part of Wall Street. And so we get a division among the capitalist class, their own, you know, intra-family squabbles. But the underlying thing is the same kind of the rich get richer, the poor get screwed. Um, The middle class remains a myth that the elite appeals to, to hide the fact that they're making all the money themselves. Oh, I'm going to add one other thing. I'm going to change the course, if you don't mind, just a second. let Let's. One of the things, of course, that was missing from um, Trump's speech is the fact of massive protests going on in the country. <laughs> I mean, that's just sort of like this kind of vision of uh, heteropatriarchal unity with the families he flashes to and the one gesture to a kind of social policy that women might like being the child care policy or child care leave. But for the most part, we've seen we saw um, a week or two weeks ago hundreds of thousands of women in the street all over the country we've seen this me too movement pushing back against sexual harassment in multiple different industries and yet from um the vision of america that trump gave us that doesn't appear at all (laughs) he's
0: he's an appropriate target for that kind of movement
2: (laughs) absolutely and you know one of the things that i just regret is that um Stormy Daniels, you know, has gotten bogged down in this because she's got real work. And then she gets kind of stained by her association with this kind of 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 cretin.
0: Trump has very low approval rating. The Congress has even lower approval ratings, but they've been able, despite the claims to the contrary, they've been able to accomplish a pretty odious agenda despite this deep unpopularity. What does that say about the the, the state of American democracy, that uh, an agenda with so little popular support, uh, like you know, the, the deregulation of finance, the, the, the elimination of environmental regulations, turning national monuments into uranium mines, all this sort of thing is deeply unpopular, but they're getting away with it. So what does that say about the state of our political system?
2: And so, like, this is what plutocracy looks like. The, dem- <laughs> the Democrats are utterly unable to... and and, and not just unable, right, unwilling to be a party of opposition, right? They screwed over the one person who opened up the possibility of an alternative politics, right, obviously I mean Bernie Sanders, um, because they want to maintain their corporate destinations, their campaign contributions, and the, you know, the rule of the elite. So we don't have a democracy. That's really the case. And I think, as soon, I, frankly, I got to say, I think as soon as um, liberal apologists start to acknowledge this and actually own their own rhetoric of authoritarianism and fascism, we're better off because they're utterly incoherent. The way that they're constantly going, oh, my God, he's an authoritarian, he's fascist decline declined the world. And then they support mainstream Democrats. It's like this doesn't add up.
0: It's uh, curious that they chose uh, Kennedy to deliver the response. He's worth $20, $25 million, opposed to single payer, uh, gets all this money from Bain Capital and Goldman Sachs. Um, and he is now the voice of the official opposition.
2: Which is this right, the sign that this is a war within the ruling class, one side of capital against the other side of capital, right so we 've got kind of the main capital side against um, the wonders of clean coal and the energy sector that is now um, no longer under attack i don 't think they picked the wrong person. I think they picked the person who represents the party they are, the party of a familial uh, a elite, right, inherited wealth, um, the party of, of, of dynasties. They wanted the Clintons to be that dynasty and just like, we can just keep our fingers crossed that um, that we can keep Chelsea Clinton out of politics for as long as possible.
0: <laughs> yes. I'm speaking with Jody Dean, a professor of political science at Hobart and William Smith Colleges. Something that struck me about Trump, though, is so much of his rhetoric and policies even uh, are very backward looking. You know, he's looking at coal. He wants to make America great again. Like it's a journey to the past. Uh, He's not talking the way, you know, Bill Clinton was always talking about the bridge to the 21st century, the industries of the future. There's all that techno optimism around Bill Clinton. You don't see any of that with Trump. And does that mean anything to you?
2: Yeah, that's super smart, Doug. I was starting to think a little bit about that um, this morning and noticing that there was no vision whatsoever of of, of like even tomorrow, right? Everything was backward-looking, and I think we see that really strongly with the um, utter omission of the fact of climate change, right? So there's these different weather disasters totally cut off from climate change. That there's this, you know, embrace of carbon-based fuels, no mind towards car- um, climate change. So I thought that was really strong, and because he's not thinking about that's the world we're in, he doesn't have any capacity to think about how to address it. So that backward look, yeah, it strikes me as intentional, too, because the vision of America he wants is this fantasy of of a white world, right? Fantasy of a white world, white workers, one big white family.
0: Uh, something that gets liberals exercised also is that Trump is ruining the U.S. standing in the world. He's just undermining our image. Um, and I wouldn't want to get too carried away with celebrating the U.S. image abroad, but he does seem to be in some ham-handed way, undermining some of the uh, foundations of the American imperial structure by undermining NATO and like all these saying, you know, we, we don't want to pay for all these countries' defenses anymore. They owe us money. Um, you know, this imperial formula has worked pretty well for the United States for 70 years and now he seems to be um, beating up on it. So is that, does that matter?
2: One way I was wondering about this one is, is this undermining of the say, the legitimation structures of U.S. imperialism, right, the treaty arrangements, the trade agreements, the money that we pour into various things, the, the at least a superficial level or appearance of respect is the undermining of those things. In fact, good, because it's um, a um, kind of inverted acknowledgement of the fact that we are losing our place. Like we're like, you know, Britain after um World War II, that we're utterly a nation of decline. So is it a, a kind of um covert or inverted acknowledgement of of US decline? Or is it something worse? A formulation where we've got all the guns and all the money, and so if we don't get what we want, we'll just kill you. And and so I think the thing is it could be the same thing at both times, right? Like the country going down when it's nuclear is just gonna be bad news.
0: Yeah, um you know, Britain declined somewhat gracefully. I'm not sure the United States, it you know, is a much more unstable and volatile country, could decline with such grace.
2: Yeah, I think our decline is is gonna be bad news, right? It's like the bad uncle who's a drunk who just brings down all of Thanksgiving with him at the same time, pulling out all of the nasties and throwing everything and disrupting and destroying you know, the whole household. I think that's probably what we're in for. <laughs>
0: God wish the, the so, bad this is
2: really grim today isn't it <laughs> yeah i
0: wish the bad drunk could the bad drunk could just fall asleep on the couch and leave everyone else alone
2: <laughs> i think the whole world does <laughs> yes
0: democrats back to that that grim t- topic um the, the the russia obsession which has just gotten psychotic at this point what do you think is driving that
2: my initial thought was always that it was hillary clinton's failure to acknowledge their mistakes and that that just became an utter Pathology of the Democratic Party, the failure to recognize that they had a terrible candidate, that um, she couldn't acknowledge um, the failures of her candidacy, and they just amplified that. But that seems a little bit too limited for an obsession that has gone on so long. And so it seems to me that it might be something more like we can't blame our system for our problems of democracy. And so we're going to have to, you know, the fact that we're not democratic, the fact that democratic processes don't seem to be working the way that they should. And so we have to project the cause of all of that elsewhere. Like, so we solidify ourselves as as a party and as a portion of, you know, a faction of the ruling class by projecting all of the problems onto an external cause. And Russia, for um, all of the... um, most of the the dominant part of the party's um childhood was the um evil bad guy it was the cause of the exterior position to american democracy so it's available as that site for demonization so that's the the one thing that 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 to me continues to make sense for it right is they need to have an exterior cause just like the republicans also have to have an exterior cause of all of the problems of the country. But for them, the exterior cause are, you know, black and brown people who live in, you know, want to live in this country or who are always sources of violence and disruption. Black
0: people have been here a very long
2: time, though.
0: but I guess they've, you know, just never been fully Americanized.
2: Yeah. And, um, but also like, I'm thinking in part of Trump's claim, what was, What did he call um, the um, Af- African, whole countries or yes, something like yes, this. Yes. Yeah, I'm thinking of that claim and then the way that for Trump and other Republicans, Obama was never really understood as being American. So there's this way that um, Republican white supremacy works is by treating all black people as never part of America, right? As this kind of this kind of other or whole, despite the fact that they built the country.
0: Another interesting aspect of the Russia obsession though is that um you know, they want to blame Trump on external forces when, in fact, his kind of love of ignorance, his belligerence, his xenophobia, uh, his white supremacy, his violence, all these things are deeply American. He's a huckster in the, the classic American fashion as well. Like so The idea that this guy came from another planet or something is, is bizarre.
2: Yeah, that's again, it's like a failure to acknowledge what the culture is that we live in. So but then we think, OK, so what? so why is that? And maybe that's a sign of the fundamental division that actually Trump um, kind of embodies or signifies or amplifies and that all of his voters recognize as well, right? There is a division in the country and there's a division. It goes within the elites and it's between the elites and sort of the working class so the 99%. And it's always going to keep getting figured in different ways because we can't really fully express it. I mean, the way I think about it is the U.S. is in a civil war right now. And this civil war, like any civil war, is also a class war.
0: Could you say more about that?
2: Yes. So on this point about civil war, one of the ways I think about it is even the meaning of the problems, even the um, description of our basic society, even an account of what real news is or truth or issues, there's no agreement on that. Right. There's not even a baseline of agreement. There's not a baseline of sources for resolving an agreement. Right. This is. You know, the old postmodern expression would be the decline of metanarratives or the Zizek description is the collapse of symbolic efficiency. Um, the way we can also say it is like there's no bottom line where people share an agreement. Right. So the world of clean coal versus is not the same world inhabited by people who recognize climate change. It's fundamental. It goes all the way down. And this is an indication of the, the, the deep rupture of civil war in the country. Yeah. And
0: then there's also this fantasy among liberals that some, impeaching Trump or somehow having the FBI and the and or the CIA deliver uh, us from him would make things better. Um, but... Oh, my
2: God. like We both remember the Nixon years and just the kind of um, inverted world where the CIA is the savior or the FBI is the savior is just so completely strange, right? It's like thinking about, you know, just imagining if we were Soviet citizens, like, oh, all of our hope is in the KGB. Oh, I guess they did sort of get that in a way with Putin. But um, but, but there is something kind of, of really inverted about thinking that spies operating without any kind of political um, legitimacy are the ones who can save the republic. That makes no sense. But I can imagine that, you
0: know, they, they get rid of him. I uh, suppose that happens. What then? I don't think anybody's got a plan for what then?
2: Honestly, do you really think that impeachment's an option? I guess I don't. I think that, um, I, mean, I mean, they've got a majority in Congress. Um, are we thinking that impeachment is like going to be an election issue for 2018 and that it should be one of the litmus tests for candidates?
0: Oh, I don't think impeachment's an option, but I suppose uh, they're hoping that Mueller will come up with something that's so damning that uh, he'll have to be uh, have to
2: resign or be driven out. I even wonder, uh, did you see that Saturday Night Live Um bit with Jessica Chastain, it was like, I don't like, does it matter anymore? or Does it even matter? And this is what I've thought about the Mueller investigation for quite a while, is that no matter what he discovers, there's not the political will or capacity to turn that discovery into an actionable outcome. I mean, by any stretch of the imagination, the kind of of, um, conflict of interest between Trump businesses and his position as president between um, all of the, the different machinations of his children, the expenditures of his household, um, the being already so close to the obstruction of justice with respect to the Mueller investigation, the fact of his um, infidelities and paying off in this environment of Me Too. All of these things in a normal world would have already led to an outcry large enough to bring someone down. But that will and
0: capacity isn't present around him. Uh, but to conclude on a somewhat more hopeful note, uh, oh, Great. Okay. Great. <laughs> um, the Sanders campaign made it obvious that there's a constituency among young people for socialism or social democracy or something like that. And, you know, we see an awful lot of people under the age of 40 um, who um, have a very different kind of politics or people over the age of 40. There was a lot of hope that that was going to go somewhere. It's kind of a little hard now to recapture that sense of hope, but um is there something we should uh remind ourselves there?
2: Oh sure. I can do this part. We've got but there's a lot of hope, Doug. Um first let's go back to again the the um people on the streets, you know, last weekend, last Saturday. And these women marches. And I've got to say, you know, I live up here in Geneva, New York, and I uh, went to the march in Seneca Falls. Seneca Falls is a town of like, I don't know, six or 8,000 people. Of some historic significance. Of some, yeah, it's some historic significance. And there were 15,000 people. It was insane. It was shocking. It was more than last year. And this was not just a crowd of pussy-hatted gray hairs, right? This was a more diverse crowd. There were a lot of young people. We were able to get them to join us in um, all sorts of, of, um, you know, much more radical chants than one would have expected. Um, And they were into it. They were excited. You know, this is just one place. There are other marches also that had a more... um, you know, an an exciting liveliness to them. I actually, I didn't expect it and was really relieved to see them there. And, you know, there's a lot of organizing going on right now for International Women's Day and a one-hour strike all over for International Women's Day. Women are calling for a one-hour walkout and strike all over the world. New York's doing it, I think, from four to five or five to six. Um, Here in the Finger Lakes, we're doing it from 12 to one. Um, So I think that people are, Still excited, they're out on the streets. They're they're involved and engaged. Um, even if one is um, not optimistic about party politics, and and I'm not, it still is good to see so many people engaged in trying to wage electoral challenges. And you know, it's only going to be through those challenges that there's any hope of moving the parties. And even if that doesn't happen, then it can drive more and more people into. Um, a more um, radical left politics once they encounter the barriers that the mainstream um, parties represent. There is hope, and the hope is in the streets. That
0: was Jody Dean, a professor of political science at Hobart and William Smith Colleges in upstate New York. Her most recent book is Crowds and Party, published in 2016 by Verso. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go with this. More Brahms performed the Amadeus Quartet with reinforcements. This is a bit of the second movement of his first sextet for strings. Till next week, bye.